a guy came up to me in a truck while I was walking on the road. When I was about a quarter mile away from this mile 96. And he asked me, Hey, did you know that there are two mean dogs up ahead that uh, you need to look out for? And I was like, yes, I've heard all about them. And I'm ready for them. I got my dog spray in my hand and I'm carrying my 380. <laughs> Welcome to the Backpacking Experience Podcast. Today is all about a fastest known time or FKT attempt of the Shell Toey Trace National Recreation Trail. Jason Wish, who is from Ohio, recently became the new record holder of the self-supported fastest known time of the 333 mile Shell Toey Trace Trail. I had such a good time talking with Jason and hearing his story and pulling off an FKT with 30 to 45 mile days of hiking every single day for nine days is a feat that is just simply incredible. I have a lot of respect for the work that Jason put into making this happen and I encourage you to go watch the two-part series of his FKT attempt on his YouTube channel and those videos and his channel are linked in the show notes. I first got to know who Jason Wish was by finding his YouTube channel and watching his backpacking and farming vlogs. Yes, backpacking and farming. And you know what? The farm vlogs are really interesting to watch and it's amazing the hard work it takes to run an operation that he and his family run. And it's just really cool stuff to see that integrating farm life into backpacking life and his life on the farm does play a big role in Jason's tenacity to take on an FKT attempt like the Sheltoe Trace. And this happened to be the first time that Jason and I have spoke to each other outside of YouTube comments and Facebook Messenger, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation that you're about to hear. Jason Wish completed his self-supported, fastest known time attempt of the 333-mile Sheltoe Trace Trail on November 11th, 2019 at 11.30 a.m. after nine days, six hours, and 57 minutes on the trail. So let's go ahead and stop delaying and jump into the conversation. Well, everybody, I am beyond excited to finally get to talk to Jason Wish on the phone and just talk about his amazing Sheltoe Trace trail hike. And Jason, Welcome to the Backpacking Experience Podcast, man. How are you doing today? Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Devin. I really appreciate it. And I'm really looking forward to sharing my FKT experience with your listeners. Dude, it's amazing. And I just recently, over the last couple of days, you released your first part of kind of the vlog of the of the trail. And dude, what an, an amazing experience. I can't wait to watch the the second part. Yeah, I hope to be releasing uh, part two here very soon. I just about have the edit done. And I know part one was a really long, lengthy video. But, uh, you know, when you go through an event like that in your life, you hate to leave out a lot of memories. So I decided to keep it full length. You know, it's almost an hour long. But that way, all those memories were preserved for a lifetime. And uh, can't wait to get part two out there for everybody to see. Well, I don't. I don't blame you at all for wanting to do that because it's probably more special to you to document and have that length of a of a video than it is to share with everybody else, even though that's kind of what you do with your YouTube channel. 
Right. Yeah. It's kind of a, you know, a little balancing act there, you know, with YouTube, sometimes you gotta, you gotta think, uh, do I, I need to keep this short and concise and just show the highlights. So it keeps people interested in not clicking off, but you know, on, in this case, you know, I didn't really look at it that way. I just knew that this is something that I wanted to put a full length video out of my entire adventure and have it preserved for a lifetime. That's just awesome. Well, we're going to get into that, but before we really dive into the fastest known time attempt, talk about the Shell Toey Trace and just the experience that you had. Let's talk about who you are and anything that you want to share about how you started backpacking. I'm interested about learning about your family farm and just mm-hmm. really anything you want to share that gives us an idea of who you are as a person. Sure. Um, well, I'm 45 years old. I've been married to my wife, Kristen, for 21 years, and I have three teenagers in the home. So it's kind of a crazy time in our lives right now. Everybody going different directions. And my oldest is going to be going off to college next year. So doing a lot of work with uh, getting him ready for college. And I am a fourth generation farmer here on our family farm that we've uh, been farming since the beginning of the 1900s. And more recently, in the last 20 years, I started a produce operation. So that is kind of what my career is, is raising fruits and vegetables and selling them at roadside stands and farmer's markets and things like that. And we also have a, a thousand acre grain operation where we sell, where we grow and sell uh, field corn and soybeans. That's a big operation. Yep. Keeps us pretty busy. And, you know, I run that with my father and one of my brothers. Not uh, not something that I'm overly familiar with in the, the farming industry, but I mean, watching your, your farming vlogs that you have on your YouTube channel, it's pretty amazing what you do out there. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's really interesting um, how, you know, raising food and um, being able to provide that to uh, you know your customer base. We sell a lot of our produce right here in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio, and it's a pretty big city. And, uh, you know, I, this kind of leads into probably the kind of the next topic about how I got into backpacking. Um, you know, growing up on the family farm here, you know, I had a uh, wide open spaces to run and play outside in the woods. So I spent a lot of my childhood building forts and doing bushcraft. You know, I didn't know it was bushcraft then, but you know, looking, looking back on it now, I was bushcrafting in my, um, pre-teens, you know, we're out there building fires and forts and, uh, you know, just learning everything about being in the woods. And we really enjoyed cowboy camping under the stars on, you know, on our thousand acres of property. So it was, it was a great experience and opportunity as a child to have that, um, open, uh, farmland and woods to, uh, you know, kind of practice all that for what, you know, what I'm kind of into now. And I was actually thinking about what, what drove me to want to do an FKT the other day. And I was thinking back to the mid eighties, I was probably around 14 years old. I started a book of records called farm records. And I uh, would do time trials of all these different obstacle courses we made, you know, even if it was a race (laughs) around the field, a certain field or, you know, to the end of the road and back, or even around my folks house, you know, we just had all these crazy records. And looking back on it, it's like, that's almost exact. I was making my own little FKTs back then. So <laughs> fast forward that to today. That is so cool. <laughs> fast that's forward so to awesome. today, it kind of led in, you know, kind of was the plant of the seed for uh, thinking about doing FKTs, you know, today. What are backpacking opportunities like in that area? I mean, is there 
places that when you first got interested in the sport or the hobby and you were like, oh, cool, I can drive an hour and go backpack here and do some miles? Like, what what are the backpacking opportunities like? Well, I, I think we're pretty fortunate in Ohio to have some pretty nice trails. Um, you know, if you look at the, the amount of YouTubers come out of Ohio that are in the backpacking, it's pretty extraordinary. There's quite a few. And I, I would say there's probably at least a half dozen backpacking loops that are between 25 and 40 miles that you can actually make a, you know, a couple of nights of backpacking out of. And, you know, beyond that, there's lots and lots of little trails. And, uh, you know, we have a one national forest in our state and we have, um, Hocking Hill state park or state forest down in Southeast Ohio, which is kind of the, you know, the foot, the foothills of the Appalachians. So there's a lot of, uh, beautiful scenery and waterfalls and rock outcroppings and things like that. So, you know, we're pretty fortunate uh, um, here in Ohio to have some really nice backpacking opportunities. And, you know, even when you've exhausted what there is in Ohio and you want more grander views for, you know, let's say um, you just have to drive across the border into Kentucky, you know, we have Red River Gorge, we have the Laurel Highlands in Pennsylvania and, um, in Michigan, you know, you got to go a little farther north, but, you know, I've, I've went up in the pictured rocks. I mean, there's just, there's amazing opportunities all around Ohio as well. Once you've, you know, are looking for something other than what Ohio offers. So I'm pretty fortunate, um, you know, in the Eastern side of the country to have all these opportunities here for backpacking. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because, well, I kind of want to get into this about talking about the Sheltoe a little bit further in the discussion, mm-hmm. but I mean, is majority of this land that you're backpacking on, is it public land? Is it national forest? I mean, state parks, what kind of land management are these trails on? Yeah, I think most of them are state parks and there are also national forest land. And the good thing about the national forest land is you can kind of camp anywhere you want there's not really designated spots that's the unfortunate thing about the state parks um they might have i think there's probably more um backpacking loops with uh better maps and mileage markers and things like that in the state park areas but those have designated camping spots so they can get overcrowded because everybody kind of has to be in one of those designated areas for starting fires now when you get into wayne national forest land which there is quite a bit in ohio you are allowed to um you know camp anywhere you want you know as long as you practice the the design you know the rules um of being off the trail a certain amount of feet and things like that um yeah and wayne national forest is pretty amazing there's some awesome backpacking opportunities in wayne was there any issues with this type of land management on such a long distance i mean 333 miles of the sheltoe trace like what did you have to make specific plans of I can only camp in this spot so I can only go this far today or right. like what what was that like? Yeah, that was um, definitely something I was concerned about when I was in the research stage of you know preparing for this. Um, even though the trail is all in Daniel Boone National Forest in Kentucky and Big South Fork National River Recreation Area in Tennessee, which also crosses the border into Southern Kentucky a little bit. Um, there are areas that have to be connected with roadwalks. Um, there's a lot of private land within National Daniel Boone National Forest, and I was actually just thinking about that 
a couple of days ago when I was driving through there with my wife, because we were down in that area again. And we were wondering, you know, how are all these people here that own property in Daniel Boone National Forest? You know, I was wondering, are they grandfathered in, you know, from being here since na- before the National Forest was designated that way? I don't know. That's a great question. And I'd, I'd like to get some answers on that. But hmm. it is very interesting how there is a lot of private land within the National Forest area. And there are cases where people will not let the trail go through their property. So we're forced the trail is forced to be on road walks to connect um, certain areas of the trail. So throughout the 333 miles, I think it's somewhere between 30 and 40 miles is road walking. So that was the one drawback to that trail. But when I was researching that, that didn't bother me because I did a lot of my training on roads. And, you know, I knew that was where I'd be able to make up some pretty good time, or at least that was my plan to make up, make some good time on these road walks with some light jogging. But once you get to the southern half of the trail, um, you know, the final 175 miles or so, there's very, very little road walking at all. So it's mostly in the northern half. Well, so let's move on to talking about the Sheltoe in in general and exactly what the Sheltoe Trace is. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get into talking about your FKT and what an FKT is. But, mm-hmm. I mean, for somebody like me that hikes in backpacks in utah i'm not overly familiar with what the history of this trail is is it a popular long distance trail or is it something that's lesser known in comparison to like the at or the long trail or uh the penhody trail or other things that that you hear about like give us an idea of what the sheltoe trace trail is um it is a 333 mile end-to-end footpath um and it's, I believe this is the 40th year. I could be wrong on that, but I believe this is around 40 years that it has been in existence. And it has lengthened a little bit every few years. Um, just four years ago, it was only 308 miles. And then it moved to 319, then to 323. And now it's at 333. And they're actually in a process of validating that 333 miles because there's a lot of folks that believe um, that it's closer to 350 because I came up with 354 miles on my Gaia app and on my Garmin minute. <laughs> so, you know, and I did get lost a few miles here and there, but it has to be closer to 350. I, I think they have not updated with the technology we have today. They need to do an updated um, measurement of the forest sections of the trail, the road walk sections. That's easy to measure, but the forest sections, some people I was talking to at the gathering the other night and what, what the gathering is, is an annual meeting where everybody who's done the trail from end to end gets together to celebrate their accomplishment. So that just took place a few days ago. And I was there to see that and got to talk to the, the president and the vice president of the association. And that was one of the topics that came up was uh, the length of the trail and getting a better accurate measurement because several people have come up with different mileage um, links like I did. But, uh, I guess backing up a little bit, the Chateaui Trace, st- the Chateaui stands for Big Turtle, I believe, or something like that. And the Indians gave Daniel Boone that name because of the backpack he carried. He looked like a big turtle. That's just kind of a abbreviated version of how the, the trail got its name. So the blazes are of a picture of a turtle throughout the trail. And that's 
kind of what you look for when you're hiking through Red River Gorge. You'll see that a lot. You'll see a little turtle sign through the Sheltoe Trace because that's that intersects through Red River Gorge. And, and you know, that's a, that's a section of the trail that a lot of people are familiar with because Red River Gorge gets so much love. A lot of people visit that place. And that's how I think the Sheltoe Trace probably became popular or is well known to a lot of people is because they see it when they're at river red river gorge so what what is the trail like as far as the the type of terrain that you experience because again 333 miles maybe closer to 350 miles is uh that's a lot of distance and is there are you going up over big peaks is it pretty flat and easy going like what kind of terrain are you experiencing as you're out I feel like the trail offered a little bit of everything, to be honest with you. Obviously, you don't get the 10,000-foot peaks like you see out there in the West. There's nothing like that. I think the highest elevation is uh, 3,000, high 3,000s, and it's under four. And there are a couple beautiful overlooks on these big rocky peaks. Um, John, the John Muir overlook is one of them, and that is an amazing view. Um, there's river, there's, there's flat walking along rivers and creeks, multiple river crossings, um, suspension bridges on some of them. A lot of them you have to rock hop on the smaller ones. Um, deep hollers with trickling waterfalls. Um, several rivers, you walk along the Cumberland River and there's the iconic Cumberland Falls, which is one of the two places in the world, I think, that has a moonbow which is like a rainbow in the night when there's a full moon a couple times a year. Oh, wow. It's, it's beautiful. I've seen pictures of it. I've never seen it in person, but um, that gets a lot of, of visitors there. Um, the Big South Fork of the Cumberland River is another beautiful place you walk by. Um, a, lot of, a lot of rock outcroppings. I'm not sure how to describe what they look like, but like caves. You see a lot of caves and just rocks all around you hundreds of feet high at points. So there's a lot of beautiful scenery along the way. And when I did it, you know, the leaves were almost done changing colors and falling on the ground. I still had some beautiful leaf color and that, that made for an amazing, amazing trip. But uh, like I said about the road walks earlier, there are um, sections where it's just like walking through anywhere USA kind of, you know what I mean, on the road. And there's just not much to see. But that you know that as soon as you get down this road a couple miles, you're going to be right back in the forest and see something amazing. So I felt like the Chateau Trace gave me a little bit of everything that I was wanting, um, other than, you know, the mountains you see in the West. Yeah, I loved on your your video. It probably was day one because you were like, I didn't pack a lunch today. I'm mm -hmm. trying to find a Wendy's. <laughs> <laughs> But you're supposed to be backpacking. <laughs> yeah. Not searching it, for a hamburger. <laughs> right. It was uh felt really strange after being on the trail for twenty six miles, you pop out into uh the city of Moorhead and there's a Moorhead University there. So I see all these uh young adults running around because it pops out right at in the camp middle of campus. And then you walk through the downtown and you know, there's all the fast food joints there, but um then you're right back in the woods. It is nice having restaurants along the way on some of these road walks and even lodges. I think there's three or four lodges you pass along the 333 miles and a few gas stations. So for someone that's wanting to do light resupplies, it works out really good for that. So that moves into kind of the next question that I want to ask because 
let's talk about what an FKT is mm-hmm. and the different styles of an FKT. First, what is an FKT and what are the different styles? Well, FKT is just an acronym for fastest known time, and it's basically just a speed record on a trail. And there is a website called Fastest Known Time. And it's, uh, I, I was looking, trying to look into the history of it a little bit. Um, I can't remember when it was started, but it wasn't long ago. It might have been back in the 80s. Um, two fellas started the Fastest Known Time movement kind of by, by doing it on the John Muir Trail out there. And uh, it's kind of just really taken off as of late. Um, and pretty much anybody can go for an FKT. You can make your own FKT on any trail you want. You just need to send some kind of verification into that website and they will post that trail in your fastest known time on their website. So it's kind of uh, self-policed in a way. So it's not like a marathon or uh, other ultra races where everything's regulated and um, controlled by it, you know, like an organization. This is kind of just a, you know, run by self-policed, I guess I, you'd say. Um, on the honor system. That, there you go. Honor system. That was the word I was looking for. <laughs> so they do like to have verification through, you know, an in reach or like a Garmin device or a spot or something like that. Or, you know, the okay. everybody has these watches now that kind of can, can measure things with GPS tracking. There are three types of FKTs. There is supported, non-supported and self-supported. And on the, the difference is on self-supported, which is what I went for, you're allowed to support yourself with like a food cache along the trail. Okay. Um, you can resupply at gas stations, lodges, restaurants, grab a bite along the way like I did. That way you don't have to try to carry your entire um, food supply from beginning to end. And most self-supported hikes are done on the longer trails, like 300 miles plus. When you start getting on shorter trails, um, maybe 200 miles and less, you see a lot of folks doing the unsupported. That's where there's going to be no support of any kind allowed. Um, a great example of this would be Follow Bigfoot. Rory from the Follow Bigfoot channel just recently got the um, unsupported FKT of the Superior Hiking Trail. I was going to ask you about that and mm-hmm. what the difference was between his FKT and, and your FKT, but you just you just answered it. Yeah, he, he started with whatever it was, 18 or 20 pounds of food, and he did not have a resupply the whole way through. He was completely on his own without any support team whatsoever or any resupplies. Now, you get to the longer trails, and you get a lot of times – well, this happens on short trails too. You get a lot of ultra runners that want to go for a supported – FKT. A lot of times there'll be marathon runners or ultra runners that want to challenge themselves on something other than just a road run. And they will take on these trails with a team, a group of individuals that will help them prepare camp and prepare meals and have check stations for water and snacks and things like that along the trail. So that's why it's called supported. They have support along the way and they may wear just a running vest and they can really fly down these trails with, you know, because they don't have much weight on themselves to carry and those times are usually much quicker than the self-supported or the unsupported times and on those supported type of fkts is somebody potentially setting up camp for them so they've already got their bed ready for them and they just need to climb into their sleeping bag and sleep or is that kind of thing not allowed 
Yeah, on a on a supported hike, you you asked. Yes, on a supported hike. Yeah, on the supported hikes, that's what you often see is uh, just an individual running. Usually, you know, speed walking up the hills and running the rest of the trail, and having check stations to help them out with their nutrition and their hydration. And when they get to, if it's a longer trail that requires multiple days, yeah, they'll have often have camp set up for them, so they can just go right to sleep and you know, try to crank out a couple of hours of sleep before they get right back up and do it again. So what was the the motivation for you to do a self-supported? Why not just go for an unsupported? Because wouldn't that seem like it would be more the kind of organic and like mm-hmm. the full experience? Yep. And I was actually just thinking about this last night because I basically, except for my one food resupply in the center of the trail at, at the middle midpoint, I basically did a self or an unsupported. I didn't buy anything at any gas stations or rest. Well, I take that back. I did. I stopped at Wendy's, but um, looking back on it, I think I could have easily done um, unsupported on that because I base other than my, myself stopping at Wendy's to get a burger. Um, I basically did an unsupported all the way through, but I, I just felt, you know, when I was doing the planning of it, knowing what was ahead of me, restaurants, lodges, gas stations, I felt it was silly to try to do the whole trail with not allowing myself to stop in and grab a bite if I wanted to. So that's kind of why I chose to do the self-supported. Um, you get to, you get over 300 miles, it gets tough to try to carry all your food in one in one pack. You know what I mean? It's a lot of weight. Yeah, I can only imagine <laughs> even going out for a week at a time when you've got seven, eight pounds of, of food on your back. It's like, yeah. man, this is the heaviest food bag I've got ever. <laughs> yeah, and it takes up so much space. And when you're trying to run a little bit and jog, it, you know, that's that was really hard on me. You know, that, that was um, probably one of the things that caused me to barely get the FKT. It was because I had so much food weight. You know, if I was to do it all over again, I think I would have put a, a food stash out every other day. So I could have had a lot lighter pack and really move quicker. Now, how did you plan your food? Because in your announcement video, as well as watching the first part of you doing the trail, you talked about only cooking food when you got into camp in the evening, which mm-hmm. obviously sounds like a strategy to save time. But mm-hmm. how did you plan your meals around that strategy of of eating well i i just knew from previous backpacking trips how long it takes and how much heavier it can be to have to break it you know obviously you're carrying more fuel too you're breaking out your cook kit and breaking out more food having fuel weight and that the time that it takes to cook a lunch um, in the middle of the day i didn't want to have to deal with that and you know the longer i've been backpacking i can see why some long distance through hikers would go to, to cold soaking their food and not even cook mm-hmm. at all. I understand that, but there is a huge moral boost, morale boost <laughs> at the end of the day, having that hot meal and being able to cook. So for me, it just felt, I felt like I was ready to try to go the entire day without cooking any food and except at night when I was done hiking and in my tent for a good for the night. And I did, I think I mentioned this on the video. I did, heat up coffee in the morning. So I did break out my cook kit 
while I was still in my tent before I packed up and left, because I do like to have a cup of coffee to help, help me get moving in the morning. But everything else was either a something prepackaged, like a, uh, a protein bar, or cliff bar, you know, things like that. Um, energy gels, um, bags of nuts, mixed nuts, high calorie, high protein nuts, um, just basically things like that all day. So you're snacking throughout the entire day. Um, I found myself needing to eat something about every hour. It didn't mm. start off like that. I think in the beginning I was trying to go every hour and a half. That seemed to be enough. But by day four, I started feeling a hiker hunger, hunger kick in a little bit. And I needed to eat something every hour to maintain my energy. <clears throat> I could feel myself just slowly start draining away if I didn't eat something every hour. So, that, you know, that was a lot of work and it's a lot of food that you have to carry with you to be able to eat that much. Yeah, well, that kind of leads into the next question I wanted to ask about the amount of energy that you are using up doing 30, 40 miles a day, right? Right, right. And, I mean, in order for you to to plan for an FKT, I mean, you obviously had some kind of goal prior because somebody prior to you getting the fastest known time had the previous fastest known time, correct? Mm -hmm. correct? And so you were planning your days based off of, I need to do so many miles and I need to get up at this time so that I'm in camp by this time. Mm -hmm. I mean, probably a ton of planning, but was that, were you using that as a means of this is how much food I need to bring with me and this is how I keep myself fed for the amount of energy I'm going to be expending through this experience? Yes. Um, I originally, okay. I knew what the fastest known time was, obviously I broke it down, even though it was a few miles. Well, that was something I forgot to talk about. Um, there was 14 miles more added to the trail since the last self-supported FKT was set. So that was my goal <laughs> was to beat him and complete the additional 14 miles. And so I, I, you know, I just broke down the mileage per day I needed to do. And I found out that I needed to just do 30 set. Well, it's not just 37. That's a lot of miles. I needed to do <laughs> right. 37 miles every day. And I've never hiked 37 miles before in my life. So, you know, looking back on it, like, what am I thinking? But um, so I needed to do 37 a day to come out on top at the end. And I, I planned my meals around that time frame, and I knew I needed eight full days breakfast through dinner of meals. And then I planned for day nine as a contingency, a half of a day worth of meals, just in case I didn't make it out. And, you know, I, I needed that and more because of things that happened along the way. Um, I knew that I, looking at other videos, you know, I one of the resources that really helped me was follow Bigfoot. He's got some great videos out there on how he planned his strategy of planning his calories and his food that he took. So um, I kind of just assumed that I would need at least close to 5,000 calories for each day. And now that it's over looking back, it wasn't enough. I thought it would be, but um, you know, I lost eight to 10 pounds on this journey. It really ate, ate my body up. Um, I think I needed closer to eight or 10,000 calories now looking back on it. And that's where I have some learning to do. You know, this is my first FKT. I've never done anything like this in my life. I didn't know what to expect. It was a lot of uh, 
a lot of guessing and a lot of assuming. And I just assumed 5,000 calories would be enough because that sounds like a lot. And that was about as much weight and room that I had in my pack. If I would have packed more calories and more weight, I'm not sure how I could have done it unless I did a food drop every other day. Like I mentioned earlier, there was a lot of strategic planning involved in that and trying to get the proper calories I needed, you know, the right amount of fats and proteins and carbs and not just a bunch of snicker bars and empty calories. You know, I bought a lot of different kinds of bars. I went to Whole Foods and tried some new things, some more, you know, whole food items, not just uh, empty calories. And, right. You know, that's an area I definitely want to do some more research in and learn more about because I don't believe I should have lost 10 pounds during this. A couple pounds, yes, but not 10. So I definitely didn't feed my body what it needed. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I want to get into like the mental aspect of this Mm -hmm. whole thing. But let me ask this question. In watching part one of your video, day five seemed like it was quite the experience getting to your food bag because I'm sitting here watching – you wake up in the morning and you're talking about, I have a few like peanut butter roll up things. <laughs> and I don't know what the other food was that you had, maybe some nuts or something. Mm-hmm. And you kept saying, I have 30 miles to get to my food bag that's hanging at whatever point it is. Like, right. Personally, I can't imagine waking up and thinking, huh. I have a few snacks. Now I need to walk 30 miles <laughs> to get to my food supply. Like, how did you stay motivated to pump out miles like that, knowing that you've got probably a bunch of elevation gain to, to mm-hmm. go up? And I don't know what exactly the terrain was like for that day, but you seemed pretty frustrated that 30 miles was how long it was until you got to your food resupply. Yeah, that that was the first moment that I was getting a little worried. I did have a five-mile road walk during that period, but I didn't really see anybody, and there was no opportunities to buy any food. So I just I had to make myself ration my three peanut butter and jelly wraps throughout the day, and I think it was just one bag of nuts, maybe two. It's not like I was starving to death, but I definitely was feeling hunger. And that was probably the first day where I really started eating away at my body weight, I'd imagine. I'm sure my body was cannibalizing some of itself for some extra energy because there's no way I was getting the nutrition I needed for a 30-mile day eating that small amount of items. But I did make it, and I remember feeling, you know, you see this in the video. I mean, it felt like I had made it to the end and finished the hike when I finally saw the halfway point coming up, which was Wildcat Monument, mm-hmm. which is where I hung my food bag. It, it was a most, it was a very amazing feeling. And I was so happy to get there. And I was so drained at that point. I remember, you know, I laid down and just started scarfing food down for the food that I was supposed to have for that day. So I felt comfortable just eating whatever I wanted right away to try to right. get my energy to get through the next couple hours. So yeah, that was a, and then that was, kind of mentally tough too, you know, to keep pushing through that day to get to that food bag, but I knew I had to do it. So my follow-up question is because we haven't talked about, I mean, we're talking about food here, but we haven't talked about your, what's happening with your body. And I mean, we know in the video that your feet and your Achilles are just basically done for and how you managed to go 
another four days on the conditions that your feet are experiencing, the blisters, Achilles tendon. Watching the video, I'm sitting there thinking, because you say you get your food bag, you're laying down with your feet up on the bench, and I'm like, oh, cool, he's going to sit there for a few hours <laughs> and rest. And you're like, oh, I think I'll take a 10-minute break, and then I'll get back on the trail. And I'm like, I can't even imagine what – that experience was like i mean you're excited to have your food but now it's like i got to get back on the trail yeah and at that point i had already started falling behind a little bit i think i had two days in the low 30s but in the back of my mind i was still confident that i was going to be able to pull it out i knew i was going to have to uh put a at least two really high mileage days ahead of me i was gonna have to put those in to get back on track i was still confident i could do that but it was very, very tough because of the pain. Um, there were some sections where there was some ATV trails and uh, kind of multi-use trails that were allowed, allowing horses to use and ATVs. And those sections had a lot of rocks. And I was like turning my ankles, like not spraining them, but like just minor turns every now and then. And I think that's where I pulled my Achilles as well. And I started getting a lot of swelling in my ankles. And, you know, if it wasn't for the ibuprofen, there's no way I could have continued on. The pain would have been too great. I would have thrown the towel for sure. So it's amazing what ibuprofen can do to you. But I was concerned that it was going to, that I was taking too much. You know, at one point, I think the final four days I was taking, I was trying to dose them because I was getting low two 200 milligram ibuprofens every hour. And you do, you spread that over a 12 hour day. That is a lot of ibuprofen. I was so yeah, concerned. Am I, am I going to permanently damage my liver or something? Cause I've always yeah. heard that, you know, um, pain medication is terrible for your liver. And I was just so worried and, and you know, whether I have some long-term damage, I don't know how you're supposed to know that it might not show up until later in life. I don't know. So that's definitely something that I'd want to try to avoid in the future. If I ever do this again. Yeah. The mental aspect, I don't think it was that was the hardest thing for me. For me, it was just dealing with the pain. But obviously, it takes some mental capacity to overcome the pain as well. <laughs> right. And I think <laughs> what really helped me push through that is my map share through my Garmin inReach. Knowing that I had a lot of people follow me on the map share really kept me motivated because I I'd made the the previous videos announcing what I was going to be doing, and I didn't want to let everybody down. So I felt like if I quit. I knew I wouldn't be a failure because I, I knew I wouldn't feel like a failure, but I would feel like I let everybody down. I told them I'm going to do this and this is my plan. And I want everybody to see me finish and complete what I told them I was going to do. So that was a huge driving force for me is just knowing that I had a lot of eyes on me through the Garmin map, watching my little dots move along the trail. And I wanted people to know, Hey, he's still moving. He's not stopped. And, He's, he might get it. You know, it just really motivated me. And then also knowing my wife was going to be down there. I mentioned it in the video several times. She had a cabin reserved for me. And if I didn't get out, she was going to stay at the cabin by herself. And that was another huge driving force is knowing that I had a relaxing stay in a cabin with my wife at the very end. So that really helped me push through the pain. Yeah, I can imagine that alone <laughs> is is enough motivation mm -hmm. to say, I'm going to do this because my wife is not going to spend a weekend alone by herself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Did you have cell phone service to be able to get on to 
that Facebook group that you created to see the comments and stuff from people? Like very rarely. Okay. Very rarely. There were some road walks in the northern section where I had decent service, but you know, at that point I wasn't really concerned about what was going on too much. I was just trying to make time and complete my my challenge that I'd set for myself. And then uh later on in the trail when I really wanted to get on there and check things, there was rarely service um up on top of the john muir overlook i got a like one bar and i was able to uh send some texts out and that was when we were trying to plan you know my final two days am i going to be able to get here and if i don't i'm not gonna make it out in time but i never really was able to get on and see what people were saying on facebook or anything but i did hear through texting back and forth with a buddy of mine that um there was a lot of people root for me cheering me on praying for me and uh just in putting encouraging comments out there. So that was, you know, put a smile on my face while I'm sitting in my tent at night, you know, here. Well, so tell me about your feet and your body Mm -hmm. because you're several weeks at this point afterward. Like how is your body recovering and how, how are your feet? Yep. Um, I think tomorrow is one month since I got off the trail and this, this week right here. So if, between week three and four, I finally feel like I'm making a full recovery, um, where I have my energy back. My weight is almost back. My blister is pretty much completely healed. It's been healed for a couple of weeks. It's just the layer of skin is not as thick as what the normal padding at the bottom of your foot is, you know, it's kind of a new layer of skin. So that's still, that's still thickening up and becoming normal, but there's no pain there anymore. Um, my ankles were all healed. My knees feel great. Hips, um, are fine. The one thing I'm still dealing with is a little bit of Achilles tendon pain on my left Achilles. I, uh, not sure if I had maybe a partial tear or something. I don't know. I don't know a lot about, you know, Achilles tendons and, you know, if they can just become stretched or tore partially or not, but, uh, there's something going on down there that's still not hundred percent. So I can't go out and like sprint or jump or do anything like that, but I could, I can walk fine and I can jog fine. Um, and I have pretty much all my energy back. And I would say weight wise, I'm about, I've got about 75% of my pre-hike weight back. But even after that, I probably still need to gain another five or 10 pounds just to get back to my normal body weight. I'm still, still a little slender right now. (laughs) I mean, just seeing the pictures of the blister that was on your foot alone Mm. and what the, the Luco tape did to one of your toes. Mm -hmm. That's just, it's just heinous and absolutely brutal. If, if, for everybody listening out there, if there's a way for you to see the blisters that Jason had on his feet, you got to see it because it's pretty incredible to, to know that you hiked on that for as long as you did. Yeah. I mean, thank goodness for the ibuprofen. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know how, I don't know how you could hike on something like that. I mean, if your life was at risk and death is imminent, that's the only way that someone could probably continue on that without painkillers. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was not good. I think for me, the biggest mental aspect I had to overcome, at least in the final half of the trail, was dealing with uh, the urge to want to sit down and rest. You know, uh, the first half of the trail wasn't that bad. I knew what I had in front of me. I knew what I needed to do to get my FKT. But the final few days, um, you know, when you're starting to hurt and you're starting to wear down, um, I just wanted to stop. I wanted to sit down. I'm going to take a 10 minute break. I'd tell myself, and then I'll get right back up and go again. But I couldn't let myself do that because you start doing that several times a day that adds up and it could be the difference in getting the FKT or not. So I, that was a big, 
that was the biggest mental challenge for me. It was fighting the urge to want to sit down and just make myself push on through that, um, that pain I was feeling and the tiredness. So I've got one more question about like kind of the, the mental aspect of, mm-hmm. of your FKT and it's a little bit different and it, it kind of caught me off guard because you mentioned this in a video. And then when I got on the fastest known time website, I found a comment from another hiker, Jupiter hikes, who, from what I understand, he also made an attempt for an F- FKT prior right. to your attempt. Correct. Correct. And in his his comments on that website, he talked about some dogs. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you can explain about these dogs on the trail because he made it sound like they are part of what took him off of the trail. Yeah. Yeah, and they did. Were, were they an issue for you? So tell me about the dogs and were they an issue for you? Um, there's a lot of unleashed dogs. I probably encountered... 50 or 60 dogs along the way, but only a, I'd say three or four came out by the road to sniff me and bark at me up close. Um, there was a couple times I had my, my dog spray and my hand ready when I would hear them barking when I was coming up on them, but they never, <clears throat> I was never at a point where I felt like they were going to come up and bite me in the leg or anything. And there was one section on day three, I believe. It was like around mile 96. And these are the two notorious dogs that you hear about on Jupiter's blog. And many other posts on Facebook, on the Chateaui Trace Facebook page. And I was worried about them all day. I knew I was getting close to them. I was carrying my dog spray, knowing I'm coming up on mile 96 where these two notorious dogs are. A guy came up to me on a truck while I was walking along the road. I was about a quarter mile away from this mile 96. And he asked me, hey, did you know that there are two mean dogs up ahead that uh, you need to look out for? And I was like, yes, I've heard all about them. And I'm ready for them. I got my dog spray in my hand and I'm carrying my 380. <laughs> I took my 380 with me on this hike. And, uh, and then he, after I told him that, he looked at me and he goes, well, you know what? I'm going to go home and put those dogs inside for you. He was the owner of those two dogs. Oh, my goodness. So I was so fortunate that the owner of those dogs happened to drive up on me right before I got to the, to his place, whether the dogs would have took me off the trail. I have no idea. You know, I feel like I was prepared for him, but I am very glad that I did not have to deal with him. Are the, are these dogs off leash because they're within people's private land and probably just off leash and the trail is close to exactly. Okay. Yeah. It's a lot of times like this road walk that I just mentioned This is deep into the forest. It's down to a single lane. And right after that dog section, it goes into gravel forest road. So, I mean, it's, it's in a place where the state doesn't even really maintain it anymore. It's very narrow way back in the woods. So I think these landowners just feel that there's nothing wrong with having their, their pets, you know, roam free in their yard, just like people may do live on a farm, you know, in the country, they leave their dogs just run run around the, the farm. So that's basically what it is. And, you know, that I don't know how you police that, you know, I definitely think it's an issue, but that's pretty hard to police and control that, you know, when they're out in the middle of nowhere like that. Well, apparently it's with dog spray and letting them know you've got a 380 caliber. Fiber <laughs> yeah. yeah, you better have your trekking poles ready too. <laughs> oh, that is just hilarious to me. Let me tell you about these dogs. Oh, yeah, those are my dogs. I'll go take care of them. That's awesome. 
Okay, so moving on now, let's talk a little bit about the gear that you took with you. And did you choose specific gear items for this attempt that you didn't normally take on other backpacking trips that you've been on? Like, did you buy specific gear items for your FKT or did you just use the gear that you had for all of your other backpacking trips? That's a great question. I've been a pretty dedicated hammock camper over the past few years. And I still enjoy hammock camping. Um, but for this trip, for me, um, since I've recently went to the ground in a Z-Pax duplex tent, I felt that would be a better option for um, the ease and quickness of setup for camp at the end of the day. You know, I think I've been using the duplex in conjunction with a hammock, just depending on what kind of trip it is, over the last year or so, maybe a half a year. And I really like the ease of setting up the duplex. And I like how light it is. You know, I, it's like 20 ounces. So, you know, I can set the thing up in a couple minutes and have my own little designated space inside there for all my gear, no matter what the weather is. I feel like in a, with a hammock setup, it would have been a little more difficult. You know, you're, you're tweaking your, your angle of your hammock, um, getting your tarp just right, getting your underquilt on just right. And I just feel like it's a little more time involved um, with setting up a hammock. And I don't like how you have to leave a lot of your gear just laying on the ground under your hammock during the night. So that's, those are some of the reasons I like the duplex tent setup better for um, tackling a challenge like an FKT. And then uh, I wanted to try a different backpack. Since I knew I was going to be jogging, I wasn't sure if the Z-Pax Arc Hall would, work, would be my best option for jogging. I had tried on uh, a light AF Curve 35 at, at one point and really liked how comfortable it was on my back. And I did a little practice run with it loaded, and I thought, man, this is the backpack for me for being able to jog. So I did purchase a light AF Curve 35, and I was very fortunate to get it a few weeks before my FKT attempt. So I was able to train with it for a couple of weeks, and uh, I was pretty happy with how that fit. And I plan on doing some follow-up videos um, here soon over the next few weeks and months um, about more specifics in my my food and my my gear and how i packed and what i would change and things like that if i was to do it again so i will be getting into more detail on some of those items but uh mainly just the backpack and the tent setup were the two biggest things that i thought were uh helped me be successful on this trip do you feel like the ground sleeping after being a hammock camper for so long you were able to get the restful sleep that you needed for doing the 30, 40 miles each day of the, mm -hmm. of the attempt? Yeah, I do. I, I like to lay out flat. That was one thing I always struggled with in a hammock was even though you get a, a pretty flat lay when you lay diagonal um, in a hammock, a gathered in hammock, um, there's still some tossing and turning that was happening with me sometimes. And, you know, on leisurely trips, I still enjoy taking a hammock. They're really fun. But, uh, there is something about laying down flat in a tent at the end of the day, at the end of a long day that was, that I really appreciated when I got to camp. And that got to be a grind, believe it or not. You know, it, that was one of the mental things that I had to kind of overcome. Um, now that I think about it is at the end of the day, the last thing you want to do is set up camp. <laughs> right. and after a 40 mile day, man, I just want to <laughs> lay down and go to sleep and like uh, swallow a, a food pill, you know? <laughs> right. Who wants to make dinner when you're that tired? And that's where I can see a, a supported um, FKT being beneficial, having all that taken care of, 
care of for you because you're forced to do that all yourself. It's just you. And uh, that gets to be a grind every day. It takes about an hour in the morning and an hour in the night, you know, from start to finish. It's hard to do it much quicker than that. Yeah. And I can imagine if you're doing something that is over a thousand miles or 2000 miles, like the Appalachian trail, then that daily grind of setting up camp, I can't imagine. Yeah. Yeah. The, that would be, uh, the hours spent when you could be hiking and sleeping. True. My next question is what was the worst or the most difficult part of this experience? Okay. Probably the most difficult part for me was, and I touched on this a little bit already was having to set up camp and knowing I had to cook at the end of each day, man, I was just, I just wanted to lay down and go to sleep. I didn't want to have to cook. So that was one of the toughest things for me. And, and other than that, probably just the pain, having to deal with the pain and know I had to push on despite feeling this horrific pain on my blister. I mean, it would be hard for me to get gone in the morning. You know, I had to pop two or three ibuprofen just to be able to get up and start walking every morning. So that was for me, the most difficult part. I mean, you would think that from an outside perspective, it would be, Oh, I have to walk 40 miles today, but <laughs> to set up camp and, and to cook a meal that that's pretty interesting. Probably not something that you would experience unless you're, unless you're doing something like this and that becomes mm-hmm. the most cumbersome thing. That's really interesting for me to hear that. Yeah, because usually on a normal backpacking trip, you look forward to that. I mean, it's not that I didn't look forward to it. I really look forward to getting to camp, just like any other trip that anybody else would ever go on. It's just knowing that once I got there, everything I had to do, that was probably the worst part. But yeah, I still really look forward to getting to camp and getting reaching my goal for that day. Sure. So my follow-up to that is, what was the best part of the experience? Oh, wow. The best part, man. Well, looking back on it from where I'm sitting right now is the amazing memories that were made. Um, even though I had to deal with a lot of, uh, pain and persevere through a lot of things and issues on the trail, the memories that were made are just amazing. I can, I just have all these, it flashes through my mind, all the things I got to see along the way. That's just a really awesome to have those memories, to be able to talk about with people for the rest of my life of what I went through. And also the, the emotions that you feel. That was something I did not expect. I feel like I went through every human emotion. The range of all human emotions was felt on the trail. There was days where I was so happy and joyful to be out there and just experiencing God's creation and just loving every minute of it. And then there was other times where I was ready to, you know, I actually did break down and cry a couple of times. And then every emotion in between there. It's just, it was amazing and unbelievable. It's something I did not expect, but it's something that's, I remember a lot and especially going back through my footage now, working on the videos, I see those moments and um, it makes me appreciate everything that I went through a lot. That's amazing. Well, my final question for you, Jason, is I want to hear about the last two miles before you finished. (laughs) I mean, at this point, we know that you are, from what I understand, several hours ahead of the previous fastest known time you know that you've got it you've got two miles before i Mm. assume your wife is there at the trailhead waiting for you was there anybody else there what what was going through your head what were you preparing for just i want to hear about that final two miles okay 
Yeah, the final two miles, there was a elation and misery at the same time because I remember, I remember seeing a sign that said I was four miles away. And when I saw that, I got the camera out and I'm talking to it, telling it, you know, kind of expressing how I'm feeling, how excited I am to get to the end, knowing my wife's going to be there. And I almost start breaking down again. And this will be in the video that's being released here shortly. Um, It was a very emotional to me thinking about I'm just minutes away or an hour away from getting off this trail. It's over. And it it was such an amazing feeling. And then when I, you know, the final two miles that you asked about, it was taking me, the trail was taking me the wrong direction. You know, I'm on the right trail, but it's taking me further away from the end. And it was, (laughs) I was so frustrated. It's like, I know I need to go left. That's where the trail head is. And my wife is, but it's taking me to the right because it's following the ridge line, you know, to get me down to the river. As you follow a river, the final mile on the way out. And I was like, I just wanted to turn left and run down the ridge where I saw the river to get on the trail. But, you know, you got to stay on the trail and follow it. And that was very frustrating for me. I remember almost just <clears throat> cursing the trail under my breath you know, on that final uh, on mile two, just wanting to get down by the river and get this thing done. And then when I finally got down there, um, I tried to jog as much as I could because I just I just wanted to get out as fast as possible. And I remember thinking, is it just going to be my wife there or is there going to be like 20 people there? And it happened to be a Monday morning. So I was assuming there probably wouldn't be anybody there because everybody's at work. And I did find out later on there was it, there would have been a handful of people there if it would have been Saturday or Sunday, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be my original completion date was Sunday. And uh, But nope, it just ended up being my wife. And I remember running out in the trail, coming around the final turn. I'm jogging. I have my camera on. It's out of focus, but I'm, you know, I, I had to have it on. I didn't know it was out of focus. I was just running to the end. I saw her car. I saw her standing there and it was just the most amazing feeling. It was my wife and I were talking about this at the cabin. I think it was a better moment than me seeing her come down the aisle on my wedding day. I kid you not. <laughs> it was, it was, it's a feeling that I want to reproduce again. It was so awesome. That's really really cool man and i and the day before i felt the same thing she went she came and visited me at bandy creek campground which is uh it was my final night that was when i was supposed to be picked up to go to the cabin but i had 24 miles to go and when i saw her that night it was like 10:45 at night you know i saw her open her car door the lights came on in the car i knew she was standing there waiting for me she sees me coming across this open field with my headlight in the dark and, you know, coming up and hugging her. It was that same feeling. It was better than our wedding day. And and then to have it again at the finish, it was just incredible. I have, I don't have the words to express how amazing that feeling was. That is. And, just and knowing that cool. I just got the FKT on top of it. Right. <clears throat> right. Well, so you finished your attempt on, November 11th, 2019 at 11.30 a.m., correct? Mm, correct. And nine days, six hours, 57 minutes for the new self-supported FKT of the Shell Toy Cherry Trail. You got it. That is just amazing, dude. I just am really, really grateful for you taking time to share this experience and talk about FKTs and... I mean, I imagine that they're going to become more and more popular and people are going to get way more competitive with them moving forward. And I'm curious if you have any advice 
quick advice for somebody that mm-hmm. would be looking to make an attempt at an FKT and then we can kind of wrap this up. Sure. You know, since I'm kind of new at this as well, I'm still learning. Um, I think diving into the nutrition part is critical. That was one area that I messed up on a little bit. I was fortunate that it wasn't a bigger mistake and I was able to get through it on the food that I brought. Other than the nutrition part, I'd say is foot care. You know, I underestimated the amount of leukotape I'd need because I didn't consider that I would get that many blisters since I'd never had them before. So that's something I'm still baffled about that I'd gotten that many blisters. Well, I guess it was just one big blister, but you know, just that I got that and I don't know where it came from and how it happened. So I think, uh, preparing your feet is huge. Um, obviously you're going to be preparing your body through, uh, hiking every day, um, for anybody who's going to attempt an FKT. And then, uh, I believe, uh, it needs to be more than just hiking though. Cause when you're walking up and down steep, rocky hills and things like that, you need, I think you need to, uh, definitely do some weight training with your lower body, you know, like squats and lunges and other things like that. And, uh, that's definitely something I'll do a follow-up video on about how I trained for my FKT. But, uh, I don't think walking's enough. And I think you definitely need to toughen your feet up as much as possible before you put them through something like that. So that would be my words of advice for uh, someone preparing awesome. for an FKT. Awesome. I love it. Well, we'll go ahead and just finish the conversation there. Jason, thank you again so much for sharing this. And you're a beast, man. <laughs> That's so, <I> don't... <laughs> so awesome. And hopefully this inspires other people to uh, just want to get out and do things like this. And yeah, man, what a, what a cool, cool experience. Thank you for sharing. Absolutely, Devin. I really appreciate you having me on your podcast and uh, hope all the listeners enjoyed it. And um, just looking forward to what's coming up in the future. Do something like this again. I want to tell Jason, thank you again for taking time to share his story. And again, I encourage you to go watch his videos about his through hike and subscribe to his YouTube channel. Jason is a rad dude and I loved hearing his first person account of his story about the Shell Toey Trace. You can find more information about the Shell Toey Trace Trail at shelltoeytrace.com. And thank you again for listening to today's episode. If you would like to contact me to share feedback, ask questions, or just say hello, please reach out to me on Instagram at at backcountryexposure or send me an email at backcountryexposure at gmail.com. I hope you have an awesome week. We'll catch you on the next episode.